Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. Okay, so we'll go ahead and begin then. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, as we look at First and Second Corinthians, we ask you to bless us, especially during the season of Lent, to be able to have the uh, different works of Paul to be just a little more open to us, so that we understand your message, which is contained within it. Help us to be able to um, understand and learn from the lessons that are contained within the scriptures and also to be able to live that out in the way we treat one another and the way we reconcile in one another through Christ. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So have you all been here before to uh, at least one of the Bible study things? So, no? Well, Jennifer... So just for a point of reference, we just go through each book. We're summarizing each book of the Bible. We've gone through the Old Testament. We're going through the New. And uh, each one of these books, if you want to catch up, you can always go to the, very, uh, go to the parish website, shepherdcatholic.com. Go to the first, um, the first one, and you can start with uh, Introduction of the Bible and go through Genesis and Exodus and go through the whole thing if you want. They're all about an hour apiece, which is as long as this one is too. So anyway, now we're on uh, First and Second Corinthians. We just finished up with Romans. And if you want to know a little more, more about St. Paul, um, you might want to go back a couple episodes when it has that introduction to St. Paul. And then also uh, a lot of the instruction kind of builds on it. So uh, what we discussed in Romans will be applied to this as well. And uh, a lot of his theology, for example, is just kind of implied at this point. And if you have any questions along the way, just make sure you ask me, because I'll just kind of keep going if you don't. So first of all, First and Second Corinthians is written to a church in Corinth, Greece. And if you look at Greece on a map, you'll see the upper part of Greece, and then you'll see the big peninsula part on the bottom. And Corinth is in that in-between. There's a, a little, um, kind of like a neck, kind of the hourglass part. And uh, there's a three-mile piece of land that separates the, the big part of the bottom from the top. And Corinth is actually on the western side of that bottleneck. So it was a pretty prosperous city. It was also a very Greek city because it was right in between Spartan, uh, Sparta and Athens and it was part of the, in, the entire uh, uh, Peloponnesian um, type milieu. And it was pretty populous, and it also had a pretty good um, trade, finance. Um, part of that was because it was a very important shipping port. And any of the commerce that went north and south through Greece um, tended to cross through that little uh, land bridge there. So the population, they're not exactly sure how many people lived there at the time of St. Paul, but it ranged anywhere between 500 and 750,000 people. So it was a pretty good-sized city then. And like I mentioned, it was also a fairly prosperous city, unlike Macedonia in the north, which was economically not as well off. And Paul makes a reference to them in Second Corinthians as well. He didn't actually write the letters from 
Corinth, though. He wrote them from Ephesus, but he was writing them after he would visit. So he would go and visit them, and then he would hear things, and then he would write these letters to try to help correct or to try to set the stage so that when he did show up, that he had the letters to back him up so that teaching would have already gotten out. And he wrote also um, the letter of Thessalonians in Corinth. So he was in Corinth first. That's where he wrote the letters, um, well, the letter, at least the first Thessalonians he he wrote there. And then later when he went to Ephesus, then he wrote the letters to Corinth, kind of after he'd already been there once. And he made at least two or three trips down to Corinth around the time that these letters were being used. And so it was all in that time. The letters were written somewhere around 57 AD, and they, uh, um, his, his stay in Corinth was between 50 and 52 AD. So that, that period of time, he was there for almost two years, and then he left. And then five years later, he wrote those letter. He wrote the first um, letter to the Corinthians, and then soon after that, wrote the second. So that's all kind of within that time period. Just kind of think between 50 and 60 A.D. is when um, Paul was writing these letters. And it was um, not that far away from when you know, the, uh, the first letters of the Bible were written. First Thessalonians would have been the first, one of the first books of the New Testament, and this is not that far after that. But it is much more developed theologically than First Thessalonians. So anyway, he was dealing with issues, and that's what Paul tended to do. A lot of his letters were concerning particular things that were going on. Sometimes they were edifying and encouraging, and sometimes they were criticizing. Sometimes they were um, letters to help correct certain practices. And First and Second Corinthians, you're going to get a lot of that. And it seems that Corinth had a lot going for it, but it had a lot that needed to happen. And so St. Paul wasn't shy about letting them know what he wanted them to do and what he wanted them to learn. So the main issues that we have here is the correlation between the gospel of Jesus and the culture of Corinth. Because it was a very Greek culture, and because of that Hellenized culture, that there were certain conflicts that were happening between the gospel message, and the Greek culture. And there were also conflicts that were going on between the Jewish culture and the Greek culture. Kind of the ongoing thing of that New Testament time. There were also divisions that were happening between different leaders. So you can think about the church was, was somewhat loosely organized, and people were tending to latch on to their favorite pony. So they were saying, well, you know, this is kind of the example of the church and Christ that we are following, and then this is the one. And although it was one church, people were starting to divide, and there were factions, and people were picking the ones that that were their favorites. And it's really not that unlike the church today, if you think about it. You know, there's always been that temptation. St. Paul's very clear to say that, you know, that's not the Christian way. Um, The Christian way is to find our unity and our identity in Christ and his gospel. But anyway, we'll get to that in a bit. There was also uh, some, some immorality that was going on. Because Corinth had a um, very prosperous um, economy and city, they were also, in many ways, very promiscuous in different ways. And because they were kind of an in-between, they didn't have the, the Jewish law, and they didn't have to follow the Roman law to the same degree people in Rome did, And so certain types of immorality were 
um, not only permitted, but sometimes even encouraged. And it became kind of like if you go to Austin, Texas, and it says, you know, keep Austin weird. You know, they kind of take a great pride in their, you know, well, it's kind of like that with Corinth, but on, an, on a morality sense. You know, people um, in Corinth actually took a certain amount of pride in being different than the rest. And so St. Paul has to correct some of the, the moral issues at the time. There were also some liturgical issues that St. Paul needed to address, and there were some issues specifically about the Eucharist and the practice of the Mass and the celebration of the Eucharist. And so he, he gets to that too. And then, if that's not enough, he wants to talk about the charismatic gifts. St. Paul came in, and I guess the, the gifts were really very abundant in Corinth. And uh, the gifts of the Spirit were, were something that were really pretty big in the church there. And at the same time, there was also this idea of the Greek wisdom. And so there was this almost, uh, you know, St. Paul needs to um, contrast a bit between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of intellectual learning in Greece. And then he also has to talk about the difference between um, philosophical learning and power, the, the power of God. You know, so he's using the charismatic gifts and some of the things that have happened in Corinth to show that, that there's one thing between learned knowledge and another thing between a lived-out experience of the gifts that God gives and the power that comes with that. And so that's also in there. And then he also does talk about some practical concerns. Usually, if you notice, there is a pattern in St. Paul's letters where the practical concerns come toward the end. And those are the things where he talks about you know, politics and lawsuits and, you know, what do we do with this food that's sacrificed to the idols? And he discusses that as well. So most of that actually is contained within the first letter to the Corinthians. So if you're looking for the one that has most of the meat, First Corinthians would be the one. Second Corinthians is a follow-up letter. After he'd left for a certain while, there was some sort of crisis that was going on. And so he wrote the second letter to try to keep people on task. And he also uh, was hearing some rumors that he wanted to make sure that people understood once again that what he was teaching was the gospel, and that goes back to Christ, and once again focus on that. And uh, we'll kind of look at that a little bit later. So anyway, Paul starts out, like he often does, with a greeting. And his greetings usually will start with a, se- with a sense of thanksgiving, and so he'll say, like, I give you thanks for all you've done and for this, what you've had. And so he does the same sort of thing here. I am continually thanking God about you for the grace of God which you have been given in Jesus Christ. In him you have been richly endowed in every kind of utterance and knowledge. So firmly has witness to Christ taken root in you. And you're not lacking in any gift. So anyway, he's talking about their abundance of gifts. And he's, he's praising them as he begins the letter. So he's, he's going to kind of drop the hammer a little later. But that's kind of the point of St. Paul. He wants to greet people, and, and he really does genuinely love the people he greets. And then he kind of gets into the meat of the letter a little bit later. So chapters 1 through 5, you've got this contrast between the preacher and the message. So on one hand, St. Paul wants to make sure everyone knows that it's the message, it's the gospel that he delivers that's important. And people are focusing on the tangents. And we saw this also in Acts of the Apostles. If you remember the contrast between Apollos and Paul, right? 
So Apollos was a very uh, eloquent preacher. He was trained in the art of rhetoric. rhetoric. And rhetoric is something that we don't really, um, it's not really important in the same way in today's world as it was back then. But back then, any preacher worth his his salt would be very well trained in rhetoric. Um, One example of this would be St. Augustine. You know, he taught rhetoric. That was what he did. So the classical period, that was considered something very important. Well, St. Paul obviously was not trained in rhetoric. He was trained in rabbinical school, so he had a type of teaching and style that was rooted more in the rabbinic tradition, the Jewish tradition. And it wasn't the eloquent words that you use, it was the substance of the words that you use. And so, so there was a bit of a contrast between the Greeks at the time who were, um, in a sense, they were kind of involved in cultural snobbery. So if someone didn't deliver the message well, they would reject the message because the delivery wasn't as good as it should be. Instead of listening to the heart of the message, well, I guess in a way we do kind of have that, don't we? You know, sometimes it's, you know, some, there was someone I knew and he, he was a, a good priest and everything, but he had a great preaching style and he would, he would preach and everyone would just hang on every word he said, but at the end of it, you would think, what did he say? You know, he, he preached for a half hour about this one thing, you know, and you know, some people just have that ability. It's a great gift, but at the same time, that you know, what's really important is the message. And sometimes we're too quick to dismiss um, the message because of the delivery. And so, anyway, Saint Paul's talking about the message that he gives, and he's saying it's really not about the delivery. You know, it's like my style might be different than Apollos or or the other um, classical wisdom and philosophers of Greece. But the content is what's important here. So he's trying to draw everyone back into that. And he's also trying to show that there's a wisdom in Christ which is different than the Greek wisdom. Okay, so let me give you an example of that. So chapter 1, verse 22. So he, he quotes the scripture from Psalm 33. As scripture says, I am going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of any who understand. And then he says, Where are the philosophers? Where are the experts and the debaters of this age? Do you not see how God has shown up human wisdom as folly? Since in wisdom of God, the world was unable to recognize God through wisdom. It was God's own pleasure to save believers through the folly of the gospel. And while Jews demand miracles and Greeks look for wisdom, We are preaching a crucified Christ. To the Jews, an obstacle they can't get over, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who have been called, whether Jews or Greeks, a Christ who is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, so what that's getting at is for a Jew to look at the cross, they would say, well, that makes no sense. You know, killing the Messiah, how is that going to be um, something that's you know wise and glorious. Well, in the same time, the the Greeks, you know, they had this idea that you know there's this resurrection of the body, and well, that doesn't fit in with the Greek way of thinking because Greeks always understood that your soul was separate from your body, and that when you die, your soul leaves the body, but the body was always considered worthless or secondary to the soul. And the resurrection of the body says that both are part of the unity of the person, and so this. You know, on one hand, the Greeks 
thought that, well, those Christians are, are kind of simpletons, you know, they don't really get it. And then the Jews would always think that, you know, well, what about this cross, you know, the Messiah got killed? And so what St. Paul is saying that, you know, the Greeks rely on wisdom, you know, they're all about their philosophies and the wisdom, and they think somehow you need to um, come to a great philosophical understanding to come to God. And then he says, and the Jews are always focused on miracles, you know, as if somehow you have to prove God's presence through these different miracles. And so what St. Paul says is that the gospel takes a third approach. It's the power of God, and it's a wisdom that's greater than human wisdom. And so both the Greeks and the Jews have something to learn from this. And so that was, that was his point in this, that people are, were looking too much at their cultural um, understandings rather than looking beyond the culture and seeing um, the gospel as something greater than even their culture. So we kind of do that too, if you think about it. So like as Americans, we have certain fundamental things that we think are, are gospel truths, and then we try to fit the gospel into that. And, you know, in the same way, the Greeks were doing the same thing. So they, they had in their culture certain things, well, we're Greeks, so this is the way it is, and then this gospel is different, and they try to fit the gospel into their culture. And St. Paul's saying, you know, you've you got to kind of reverse the process here. You know, take the gospel message and then see that as the greater wisdom that supersedes even your own wise people and your wisdom. Okay, so Paul, when I was talking about what he relied on, so if you go to chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, so here he's contrasting the wise teachers of Greece with his style says, I did not come with any brilliance of oratory or wise argument to announce the mystery of God. Okay, so you can kind of see where he's headed, right? Because what a Greek would expect is someone comes in with a good philosophical argument about why God exists and the gospel should kind of fit within that, that type of argument. And he says, I didn't come with that kind of um, argument. I didn't come with oratory skill. I mean, he was not versed in rhetoric. He says, I came to announce the mystery of God. And I was resolved that the only knowledge I would have while I was with you is knowledge of Christ and him crucified. So once again, that's a little dig. Because he's saying, you know, what I'm presenting to you is the gospel reality and truth that supersedes what you even might think are the criteria for being able to receive the gospel. You know, basically he's telling the people they need to expand that. And that power of God was something that they did experience. And so he's really drawing their attention to that. Of course, he's speaking specifically about many of those charismatic gifts that are going to be discussed from chapter 12 and 13. Also, in uh, the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about how he feeds them, but they're not quite mature yet, so he has to feed them milk. So you think about this image... It's like a, you know, a mom feeds the, the baby milk until the child grows up and is strong enough to be able to receive solid food. So what he's saying is, I, I'm kind of taking it easy on you guys. You know, I'm feeding you milk because you're not really able to receive the fullness of the gospel. And even so, even though I'm only in the milk category, you're still not getting it enough so that I can kind of move on because you're still stuck 
in, in the old ways of thinking, and you haven't opened yourself up to the fuller wisdom that comes with God. All right, that's, that's kind of like, very common actually, if you're, if you're going to be teaching um, someone something, you, you don't start out with, you know, the mysteries of the universe. You have to start off with little things like, you know, when you cross the street, look both ways, you know, and so St. Paul's kind of talking about um, that using that um, imagery. So they're still not mature yet, and one of the reasons why he mentions this is because they're still fighting over whether they're following Paul or Apollos. See, like Apollos, see, like he even mentions at the end of this, so he says, as long as there is jealousy and rivalry among you, that surely means that you are still living by natural inclinations and by merely human principles. Okay, so those natural human um, inclinations and human principles show that they haven't accepted that greater wisdom. You know, they're, they're still trapped in their cultural snobbery. You know, I'm using that word lightly, but um, it's, it's just the idea that their culture is blinding them because they think that all truth has to conform according to that culture. And so, so then the, the last line here, verse 4, while there is one that says, I belong to Paul, and another says, I belong to Apollos, are you not being only too human? You know, so it's like instead of focusing on Christ, you're all focusing on Apollos and Paul. You know, so he's saying in this argument, even if you, you say, well, like, we're for this or we're for that or whatever, you need to get beyond that and start focusing on the true message. You know, get to the meat. So that's what he's talking about there. Okay, so this is kind of an interesting. Now moving to chapter 4, verse 3. He says, It is of no importance to me how you or any other human court may judge me. I will not even be the judge of my own self. Well, there's an interesting teaching in this. What he's referring to specifically is some people are looking at him and they're saying like, well, he's not really a good preacher. You know, we shouldn't even listen to him because he doesn't have the style like Apollos or those other preachers. Well, he explains himself well and he says basically, you know, look, it's the gospel that's important and I do preach a wisdom if you're able to grasp it, but you have to get beyond yourselves to do that. Um, But here he's talking about, well, you know, I don't really care what you think. If you judge me as being ignorant, he goes, I don't really care. You know, he goes, I don't even judge myself. Well, that's an interesting thing, right? Because we, we've kind of been trained that we're supposed to always be judging ourselves. Um, really, if you think about it, God's the one who judges. So therefore, we shouldn't even be judging ourselves. We should be doing the best we can to live the gospel. But um, we shouldn't necessarily be looking at ourselves, we can look at ourselves critically and say these are areas we need to improve, but when it comes to our own salvation, we should be careful because that's not really our job. Just as it's not really the job for us to judge others either. You know, that's up to God. Now we can judge behaviors, right? We know what's right and what's wrong according to the measure of the gospel, but when it comes to who's saved and who's not, that's kind of up to God. And so St. Paul um, is, is saying here that he doesn't even judge himself which is kind of an interesting comment, a little side note in there. Okay, so, and then verse 7, he kind of gets a little uh, sarcastic here. So who made you so important? What have you got that was not given to you? And if it was given to you, why are you boasting as if it were your own? You know, so here he's saying, like, any wisdom you might have comes from God. 
It's not something you manufactured on your own, so quit bragging and boasting as if somehow you did something to deserve it. And what he's getting at here is he's, he's being very blunt because he wants people to understand that, that humility is a necessary element of receiving the gospel. And as long as people are caught up in a, a spiritual or cultural snobbery, then they're not going to be open to receiving the fullness of the gospel because it's always going to be getting in their way. And if they're looking at their own um, actions or their own beliefs or whatever that is, and um, they think somehow that they deserve something better because of it, then they're deluding themselves. So St. Paul is talking in here about this idea that, that we, just, we need to be humble. And then interestingly enough, he goes on from there. It's like uh, chapter 4, verse 14. This gives an insight into why he's saying what he's saying. And he's not telling people this because he wants to go off on them, because he gets some secret thrill out of doing it. He's doing it because he wants them to come to that fuller understanding. And the reason is, is because he loves them and cares about them, which he expresses here in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 4. I am writing this not to make you ashamed, but simply to remind you as dear children, for even though you may have 10,000 slaves to look after you, look after you in Christ, you still have no more than one father, and it was I who fathered you in Christ Jesus by the gospel. It was funny because today at the readings, of course, it was the one saying, call no one on earth your father. You know, and of course, who reads this but a, a father, you know? But, uh, you know, the whole point of that was is Jesus was criticizing the scribes and the Pharisees who used positions of importance so that they could lord it over other people. And what St. Paul is saying is, look, I am trying to father you in the right way. You know, challenging when you need to challenge, affirming when you need to affirm, um, bringing people to the greater gospel message because I fathered you in Christ. Meaning, you know, think about being born in Christ. You know, that that comes through some sort of instrument. And St. Paul said, look, you know, I helped to form this church. And, you know, you received the gospel through me. But not only that, you know, I fathered you in the process. It's spiritual fatherhood is what he's talking about. So there is a big difference between fatherhood that, that is implied as Jesus was criticizing, um, lording over people and trying to um, be a tyrant. What St. Paul's talking about is being a father in service, which is the model of the priest, you know, because it's modeled after Jesus himself in the, in the family um, sense of the word. But anyway, that does give an insight about why St. Paul's doing it. Um, sometimes St. Paul gets unfairly uh, categorized as being mean. You know, man, he's so mean. He's always yelling. You know, but if you, if you read between the lines, you see like his point and his purpose was, was always for the greater good of the people or the person. You know, so he was pretty faithful to that. Okay, so now we're going to go to the good, fun, moral problems. So this goes through chapter 5 and chapter 6. So there were some problems going on in Corinth, and it had to do with people who thought, um, first of all, well, we're Corinthian Greeks, so we can pretty much do what we want. You know, and that was one way of thinking. Uh, another way of thinking was, well, we have freedom in Christ, so that means we can do whatever we want. It doesn't matter because we're free in Christ. Um, it's the difference between responsible freedom and absolute freedom. And in the book of the Romans, we, we showed the difference when St. Paul was going through this 
And he was saying, yes, you do have freedom in Christ, but that freedom is the ability to choose good and to do what is right. That's where true freedom lies. And if you think about, you know, where true slavery is, you know, that's where people oftentimes do things they think they're doing in freedom, but it's actually entrapping them. And so here he's talking about a couple specific cases. And one is, there's a, uh, there, there's a problem with a son who marries his stepmother. Or, I don't know if he marries actually, but he's together with his stepmother. And we don't know the circumstances around it, other than St. Paul is saying that's something that can't be done. It's, it's not only prohibited in the, the Old Testament law, but it also goes against Christian morals. Well, it also actually was illegal in the Roman law system, but because Corinth wasn't strictly speaking part of, it was part of the Roman Empire, but it wasn't part of the strict Roman law like it would have been in Italy, you know, they actually had permission to not have to follow that law. So in this case, St. Paul's saying, you know, you're even worse than the pagans, you know, because like the Romans even don't do this. You know, so he, he's, he's trying to say that, you know, we have to be held to a higher standard here. And in Leviticus 18, it forbade marriage between a son and a stepmother. Um, but anyway, Corinth had an exception from, from that. And I guess there was someone in the community, into the church, that, that thought that that freedom in Christ meant that this was totally acceptable. And Paul's basically saying no. But it also seems that, it seems also that, um, the, the person who did this was pretty shameless about it. And because of that reason, he uses the, the expression, you know, that, well, maybe he needs to be handed over to Satan. And that's, that's a bit of an idiom. You know, it's an expression. So it's not like we're going to literally hand him over to Satan, but it's, it's the idea is, well, he needs to repent. He needs to understand how serious this is. So we're going to isolate him from the community until he understands you know, what's going on. And that doesn't really seem like that big a deal to us because we're very individualistic. But in the ancient world, being isolated from a community was, was a, huge, um, a huge issue. You think about the lepers around the time of Jesus. The, the, the biggest uh, suffering that took place there with leprosy was not the disease itself. It was that if you had the disease, you could not be part of the people. You couldn't be part of the the chosen people, because you were outcast. You were on the fringes. You were marginalized. So you weren't able to participate in the temple sacrifices and the synagogue worship. And being a leper meant that you were literally separated, the way they looked at it, from the possibility of salvation because you were separated from the people who are the chosen people. Well, here in Greece, it was, it was very similar even there, that the church was, you know, the protection against Satan. So if you're no longer allowed to be part of that group, then that's like handing you over in a sense because you're, you're, you're outside of the protection that you would get from the church. You know, the teaching, the gospel, the, um, the Eucharist and all that. But the point was that he might repent and come back. And so he does say that. And the point is salvation, Okay, so then, in chapter 6, it's talking about the Gentile courts. So what was going on were there were people in the church who were, um, they had certain grievances against others in the church, so they would um, start suing 
to try to get their grievance. And they would go before a judge, which was a secular judge. And what St. Paul is saying here is like, why are you guys doing that? You know, isn't there a sensible member among the church who can decide these things for us in a way that's going to be a little more just than going to a third-party secular judge? And he's trying to call people into the idea of, you know, sorting things in-house as much as possible before you actually go to the outside. And uh, I don't know, people probably try to draw parallels between today's world and, and that world, saying, you know, well, you know, we Americans are so so happy, you know. But uh, I don't know, it's not exactly the same, but there might be some similarities. I think one thing that we can take from this is it seems that oftentimes people don't want to take the work and take the step to reconcile with someone before they go telling someone else about what they're, um, you know, what they demand or what they want. And so even outside of the, the, the courthouse and all that sort of stuff, I think there is an obligation that we have as Christians to try to do what we can to reconcile with one another um, before we, you know, go tell on them. <laughs> so, but anyway, for whatever that's worth. Yeah, Father, you must talk. Actually, it was, I, can, I think I can safely tell this story because I'm, I'm sure neither one of them are still around. But I had, a, like way back when in the old days, um, someone who came because they wanted me to call and talk to their neighbor and, you know, tell the neighbor that, you know, she's being mean and she needs to stop it. And, you know, it was all this kind of stuff. And apparently they lived in the same trailer park. And, you know, they figured that if you just sick the priest on them, then they'd have to do something. But, you know, yeah, it didn't work. So I, I basically told her, I said, look, you know, you've got to go and you've got to be a, an adult here. Yeah. <laughs> be reasonable. Talk to her, you know, be like two adults. Yeah, I know. Well, it's like, I, I don't know if I told this one, but I did a funeral once, and then the family was fighting at the funeral, and they wanted me, the mom wanted me to tell the daughter that she should be able to keep the, um, the TR7 that was parked in the front lawn that didn't even run. So, so who, yeah, it's a car. Who cares? Give her the car for all I care. Anyway, but the, I think the thing is, it's like, you know, try to, as much as you can, you know, to, to kind of take care of things in a, a just way in-house. And if that doesn't work, you know, rely on some people who are going to be um, helpful to bring people together rather than cause even more division. But that's a lot of the chapter 6. And then at the uh, end of chapter 6, he's got the list. So chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Where is it? Here we go. Do you not realize that people who do evil will never inherit the kingdom of God? Make no mistake, sexual, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, the self-indolent, sodomites, thieves, misers, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, none of these will inherit the children, will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you used to be of that kind, but you've been washed clean. Okay, so what does that mean? You've been baptized, right? So you've been baptized into the faith. You've been sanctified and you've been justified in the name of Jesus Christ and through the Holy and through the Spirit of our God. And here, this is a, a contrast too because there were those who were thinking that, well, you know, we don't really have to follow all these rules because we have that freedom in Christ. You know, where St. Paul is just saying, okay, I'm going to be specific now. So he starts laying it all out there saying, you know, look, we're called to live good and moral lives. 
And, you know, that's the whole point of having our sins forgiven, being washed, and then living that new life and that new freedom in Christ. And so there's all that kind of implied in there. All right. Chapter 7 is uh, somewhat of an interesting thing. This is based in the idea that um, they thought that the end of the world was coming pretty, um, pretty soon. They didn't know exactly when, but Jesus kept saying soon. And that soon is somewhat, somewhat of a relative term. Now, one of the first letters of the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians, you could see that it was much more soon and urgent. And they would talk about things as they had these questions about, you know, well, what happens when Jesus comes back? Because we thought he was coming back so soon, you know, that my mom, who was sick at the time, was going to be saved. But now that he hasn't come back and she died, what happens to her? And um, so Paul talks about, you know, how they're still going to be saved. Don't worry. You know, Jesus is coming soon, but we don't know when that is. And here in uh, 1 Corinthians, this is only five years later, they still think that it's coming soon. You know, it's almost like a lot of things in life, you know, soon. You know, in Spanish they say, ahorita, I mean, in a little while. And so we tend to think soon means like very soon, but obviously for God, soon means at least a couple thousand years. So, but at the time, when they're trying to figure out, well, how do we live thinking that Jesus might come back any day now? And St. Paul's giving some practical advice here. He's saying, well, if you're not already married, you could be like me. You know, devote yourself to the gospel and, and uh, life's short, so, you know, you'd be a little less distracted and you can do more if, you, if, you're, if you're not married. He said, but if, if you think you need to be married, go ahead and get married. And if you're already married, stay married. And by the way, if you are already married, you know, do the, thing that, do the things that married couples do. You know, that that's okay, that's good. You know, especially if by not doing that, you're going to, you know, kind of be led into another type of sin. And he said, you know, so, so men and women who are married, you know, don't, um, you know, don't abstain. But if you both want to abstain, go ahead, as long as you both agree. You know, but anyway, he's just kind of getting some practical advice. But behind it all is he's saying, you know, there are some people who um, probably should be widows or virgins or single or celibate. And that's a gift that God gives those who accept it. You know, go ahead and accept it. But if you can't do it, don't make the promise. So he's, he's kind of doing the, the practical thing here. But, but once again, when you think about it, you're saying, well, that's because Jesus could come back tomorrow or next week or next month. And so it's a lot easier to say, well, I'm not going to, you know, worry about this stuff. I'll just stay single forever, as long as you're thinking that. But, you know, St. Paul's a practical person. And so he kind of gives some advice to people who might be thinking along these lines. All right, so he's hinting to the long term, even though um, I'm pretty sure that the church at that time would be thinking that Jesus is coming back very soon. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay, so chapter 7, verse... 26? 36. 36, okay. If someone with strong passions think that, thinks that he is behaving badly towards his fiancée and that things should take their due course, he should follow his desires. There is no sin in it. They should marry. That's just saying, if you're engaged and you're thinking like, well, maybe I should be single and, and not get married, 
well, it's eating him up because, you know, he's, he's like an 18-year-old guy with a lot of hormones. So it'd be better for him to marry. That's kind of what he's getting at. Like I said, it's pretty practical. He uses different terms like passions and that sort of thing. You know, but if he stands firm in his resolution without any compulsion, but with full control over his will, you know, you get the idea. You know, so, so it's kind of like when we have people that say, you know, well, Father, I can't be a priest because I like women. Of course, my response is, it's good to like women. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how God makes us, you know. So, you know, but, you know, when you're 18 and 19 years old, you, you, you kind of figure that there's no way I could possibly not have women, you know, whereas, you know, when you start getting a little older, then I guess it gets easier. I say I guess because it hasn't for me, but... But it, anyway, these are all those practical things of St. Paul. You know. Okay, so look into chapter 8. Let's move on from the uh, marital things and talk about food offered to false gods. So, you know, we don't really have uh, people that offer food to false gods anymore like they used to. I, I, well, actually, I should take that back. It does happen, but not so much in the United States. Typically, we go down to the supermarket, and we don't have to wonder whether the ground hamburger is actually something that was offered to Zeus. You know? But in the Roman world, it was very common, actually, that different people in different markets would make sacrifices, like offerings, to particular gods, and then they would sell the meat off as, as a way to kind of recoup the cost. But as they're in the market, it was really hard sometimes for people to know what exactly which meat was sacrificed to which god. And if they did know, then there was the dilemma. Well, it's like, I obviously know that there is no Zeus, but what about this meat that was sacrificed to Zeus? What do I do there? Because it's, like, it's not like it's really Zeus's, because there is no Zeus. So can I still eat it? And once again, St. Paul's kind of being practical here, and he's saying that for the sake of those who don't know any better, it might be better if you don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. He says, you know, obviously it, they're not, those gods aren't real, and we have freedom to be able to eat this whatever hamburger or, or whatever it is, pork chops, not pork. Yeah, pork, they could do pork by then, but St. Paul wouldn't do pork. Anyway, as, as they're going through this, then um, what happens, for example, if you're at dinner and you've got a family or a bunch of guests who sit down and they notice that you're eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. They're going to get the wrong idea. Or they're going to be, if they're weak, for example, let's say I'm a new Christian and I'm really breaking from, you know, some of those gods that I used to follow. And all of a sudden, you know, one of the gods that I used to follow was like Pan or something like that. Well, now all of a sudden I'm at a meal and there's meat that has been sacrificed to Pan. So I'm going to be vulnerable because of that. Like I said, we don't have this happening too much in our world. Um, another way to look at it, though, is like, okay, let's say that there's someone who was a, a raging alcoholic who, who gave up alcohol, and you know that, and they come over to your house, and you decide that, well, we're just going to pour drinks for everyone and make sure that we all have wine for dinner and this sort of thing. It's pretty irresponsible, isn't it? Not because you don't have the freedom to be able to drink wine during dinner, but for the sake of the other person, it's probably not a good idea. And so St. Paul, once again, is just kind of using a practical approach to that. So he's saying, 
yeah, food idols aren't real, but let's not scandalize others. And that freedom that we have means that we need to be respectful of others. And our action should always be guided by love. Meaning we're thinking of the other person and, and the ramifications that might, might happen there. At the end, at uh, chapter 9, verses 20, 24 through 27, there's a nice analogy, which you've probably heard before. He's talking about, well, 24 through 27. He's talking about um, this, you know, going to, um, going to God, going to Christ, ultimately to heaven, as trying to win the race. And the prize, of course, is, you know, forever in heaven with God. And so he says, do you not realize that though all the runners in the stadium take part in the race, only one of them gets the prize? Run like that to win. So in other words, he's saying, don't get lazy in your faith. You know, really go for it and really put yourself into it and, and, and do it like those competitors that are really trying to be the one that makes it. Um, and he says, every athlete concentrates completely on training, and this is to win a wreath that will wither, you know, the little grape branches and things they used to do for the Olympics. Whereas ours will never wither. You know, that's the heavenly crown we get. So that is how I run, not without a clear goal, and how I box, not wasting blows on air. So that's kind of funny. I guess they had boxing back then, you know. It was... I punish my body and bring it under control so to avoid any risk that having acted as herald for others, I myself might be disqualified. Anyway, a lot of wisdom in that last couple sentences. You know, just the idea of being single-minded and focused on our faith and, you know, and looking at um, training ourselves to be more and more Christ-like in our actions. So, anyway, it's kind of a nice little summary of all that. Okay. Chapter 10, he gives a little more food. We'll move beyond the food here. All right, so chapter 11, he's talking about social respect, respectfulness at public worship. All right, there are different social standards when it comes to what's acceptable and what's not, not only among different cultures, but even among different age groups and uh, you know different areas. Um, when I, for example, when I was down in Mexico, they had big signs all over the place saying, you know, no tank tops, no flip flops, and no shorts, and you know, they had all these things that, you know, if you're going to church, and if you show up with a hat on or something like that, you know, someone's gonna hunt you down, because it happened to me. I forgot I had a hat on. I didn't tell them I was a priest. Otherwise, no. But <laughs> so I was in the. Well, I don't normally wear hats, but it was so hot in Mexico, and, you, you know, I was getting sunburned, so I was wearing a hat just to keep myself from getting sunburned. And uh, I go into the um, cathedral there in Mexico City, and uh, some guy, like, yells at me because I'm still wearing my hat. Well, I forgot I had my hat on, but uh, at that point, I figured it'd be a good time not to tell him I was a priest. So I just said, I'm sorry, you know. Someone's throwing things back there, don't worry. So, but anyway, there, there are certain things. And it's funny because he uses some references here. He's talking about, for example, long hair and short hair. <laughs> Father Theo, he's in the back. Okay, so for example, he's talking about long hair and short hair, and he's saying, you know, and then he talks about veils and no veils, and he's talking about customs that, that change. Um, but... One of these things, too, we have to be careful about how we read some of this stuff because sometimes there are cultural norms 
that are in scripture, but it doesn't mean that those are the norms that we have to use in every culture, you know, or in every time and age. Um, I actually had someone once, he said that uh, Jesus had short hair and he could prove it. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, why do you say that? He goes, well, because St. Paul said that it's, it's dishonorable for a man to have long hair, but it's honorable for a woman to have long hair. And Jesus was the most honorable of all men, so he must have had short hair. Makes sense, right? There's a lot of assuming, yes. And uh, because, you know, Greece and Palestine were very different. And if you were a Greek, you would cut your hair shorter as a man. If you're in Palestine, you would be much more likely to have beards and longer hair. But these are cultural norms. So when St. Paul's addressing the church, he's basically saying, respect the cultural norms of the custom. For example, if we're a church and someone shows up in a bikini, we'd be like, you know, that's a little weird. You know, it's very distracting, right? Or like very bright flashing lights or something like that in my clothes. You know, that'd be very distracting. Um, There are also other cultural norms. It's just a matter of being respectful. And uh, I was in a conversation with someone once, and he just, he didn't like to bathe. And uh, he just was always messy and smelly. And uh, a friend of mine and I, we were just talking to him, saying, you know, one way you can really uh, um, be nice to others is by your appearance. You know, just by being presentable. It it sounds funny, but um, the idea there is that that when you're, when you're kind of acting within a certain social norm, that there's a certain respect that can be given out at the same time. Now, of course, you don't want to get carried away with this sort of thing. You know, like where you have the, uh, um, I don't know what you call those, but the fashion Nazis in every church who tell everyone how they should be and act and dress and everything else. You know, to a certain extent, when people come, I'm just kind of happy they're here. But, uh, but it does have some practical advice for us that when we're traveling and stuff like that, we just try to respect the social norms of the place because it helps people to, to on the, uh, the, the unity aspect. So, anyway, not to get too much into that. Okay, chapter 11. This is where it gets a little fun because he starts talking about um, the Last Supper. And he's talking about how there are factions, first of all. Now, the Eucharist is about bringing people together Yet at the same time, he's noticing in the church that there are all these factions and people are fighting, you know, that infighting thing. So glad we don't have to worry about that nowadays. But uh, anyway, that's one of his issues. And so he's really hitting that head on and saying we need to be unified in Christ. Also, he's, he's really uh, condemning people because the, at that time in Corinth, at the church, they would meet, they would have meals together, and then they would celebrate the Eucharist. Well, at the meals... There were some people who would have an abundance of food and other people who didn't have any food and people weren't sharing. And then there were people who were getting drunk before they would go to the... See, you think we have a bad, you know. It's like everything's, you know, tame comparison. But St. Paul, once again, says that, look, you know, if if you're going to come here and just selfishly eat your food, stay home. You know, eat there. Don't you have homes where you can do that? If you're here, we need to be sharing with one another. We need to... you know, be respectful and not be getting drunk. And, and so he's talking about this. But there's another aspect in the context of it. The only reason he's talking about the Eucharist is because um, there are problems with how they're doing it. So he needs to reground them in how it's supposed to be done. And for that reason, we have a pretty good little explanation of what they used to do at the Eucharist. And 
Um, at one point, it's, he's using this, this idea of, of the tradition which I received, I now hand on to you. You know, which is, is one of the pillars of the Catholic and Christian really understanding is that um, we, as a church, have to receive our tradition. I'm using the big T tradition here, like celebration of the Eucharist and certain types of theology. We receive that, and then we pass it down to the next generation, but we, we pass down what we received, and we don't have the right to really change the essential nature of what we do and how we do it. All right, now that there are incidentals and accidentals, and then there's the essential. So the Eucharist, for example, he's saying, this is how we do it, you know, and he's talking about the true presence, discerning the body, and he even uses the words of institution. So, hi, Father Theo. Go ahead. It's all yours. <laughs> so... So this is very important too. The, the idea of the Eucharist essentially is what it is, is something that the church receives and passes on. St. Paul uses that same language because he's doing the same thing. So let me see if I can give you that. The tradition that I receive from the Lord and also handed on to you, is on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You'll notice the same formula, right? See, this is the, the, the Eucharistic practice was well in place. And actually, if they didn't have issues in Corinth, he would have just assumed they all knew this, and he, didn't, he wouldn't have brought it up. So the only reason we have this in Scripture is because there were problems in Corinth that he needed to correct. So that's good for us for a couple reasons. One is we can learn that we're not supposed to be getting drunk and not sharing before we come to Mass, um, that we need to be unified in Christ and not be you know, divisive and, and uh, we need to be respectful of one another. Um, at the same time, we celebrate the Eucharist according to the way that we have received. So it's kind of nice that uh, Corinth had their issues because we have some good instruction out of that. Okay, so... Anyway, chapters 12 through 14, here we've got a lot of the different gifts. So he will specifically list, and actually if you haven't done this in a while, it's good to read chapter 12 uh, because it really does have a a good explanation of what they call charismatic gifts. Um, I don't know how many of you are charismatic or know anything about it, um, but things like speaking in tongues and gifts of prophecy and discernment, Um, All those are intended to edify and build up the church. And he he lists a lot of these spiritual gifts, but he does it within the context of the unity of the church. And he uses the metaphor of the body. You know, it's like all these different gifts were given to the body as a whole to build up and to edify the church as a whole. And he said, if if it were up to me, I would rather have someone have prophecy. Because if, if someone speaks in tongues and you have a newcomer who comes into the church and they're speaking all this random stuff, that's not going to go a long way to help this person to know the truth and to come to Christ. Where if you have someone who's prophesying, then that's building up the church because it's, it's giving someone some, some very powerful um, instruction and witness of what Christ is all about. And 
He, he says gifts of, of the Spirit are great, but they should be used in a public manner in a way that builds up, in one that is good for evangelizing rather than dividing and separating. And so things need to be managed. And, and that's, I think, one of the first lessons of charismatic prayer groups. They kind of have to be managed. If they don't, they just go crazy. And, you know, it's like I belong to a, I don't now, but I have belonged to a charismatic prayer group. And if the leadership is good, then everything goes great. But if the leadership goes bad, I mean, it goes bad. <laughs> so, so I think the, the, the lessons of this are, are very clear too. You know, once again, keeping the goal and the focus. And then, of course, after all of it, he says, the greatest gift is love. Now, we hear that at every wedding. Did you pick that one? <laughs> so, so at the end, he talks about, you know, and this is, this is great and everything, but let me talk a little bit about the highest gift, which is love. And then there's chapter 13. And so he basically says that, that every gift is subservient to the gift of love, and therefore they need to be well-ordered and um, done in a way that edifies and builds up. Kind of common sense, I'd imagine. And there is a certain importance in the community, so chapter 14, he expresses a lot of that. Building up with gifts takes precedence over the spectacular. And um, that's kind of the basic idea. Chapter 15, he just once again reemphasizes the fact of the, re- of the resurrection. And there's one little verse in there I think that's, that's a very good one to keep in mind. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you be saying that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ cannot have been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is without substance, and so is your faith. So, in other words, there were people who were denying the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of the dead. Um, Part of that goes back to the Greek idea that, well, there's no, it doesn't make sense that Jesus would have risen his body as well as his soul. His soul went up to heaven. So St. Paul's saying that if that's really what you believe, then don't be Christian because it's not doing you any good. If we don't believe in the resurrection, then what's the point? You know, that's kind of the essential um, point of Christianity is the resurrection, you know, cross and resurrection. And there are Christians who don't believe in the resurrection, which I find ridiculous. <laughs> Why be Christian? Makes no sense. But anyway, St. Paul beat me to it, so he mentions that. All right, it's 8 o'clock, but Second Corinthians is actually pretty easy. And it's something you can just read on your own and, and get pretty easily. So it starts out with the first seven chapters where he's talking about a crisis that broke out. And St. Paul has to come back and make a second trip to Corinth, but it's a very quick one. And then he, then he leaves again. You know, duty calls. He couldn't stay, but he wanted to come back again later. Um, he never would come back later. So this would be the last trip, that little brief thing. Um, but he writes from Ephesus where he's suffering. We're not exactly sure um, what he's going through, but it's probably um, related to some of the captivity um, that was going on because he was being arrested and he also was talking about um, you know, some of the sufferings that he had when he was preaching in Ephesus and he's even been stoned and you know, with rocks, that kind of thing. Just for you young people that might take that wrong. All right, so first of all, he talks about a paradox. And 
there, there's always this paradox with St. Paul, because on one hand, you're encouraged, yet you're still suffering. And there's death, but there's life. You know, like we, we can die and we can suffer, but then again, there's life. And then there's poverty that we can have, yet riches. And he uses these, these paradoxes, like weakness is where we find our strength. Um, and this is just kind of how Jesus turns things upside down. And it's part of the way that the gospel is presented, not only by Jesus, but St. Paul. And he uses that. Um, interestingly enough, one of the reasons why he had to come back for the short time that he did is because there were um, people who were doing things that were counter to what Paul was guiding them to do. And there was a principal offender, I guess, that people really you know, were, were being hard on. And St. Paul actually... Um, encourages them to lighten up. <laughs> so, chapter 2, v- verses 6 through 7. Let's see. I'm going to go ahead and find that. Because this is, once again, something for those who tend to think that St. Paul's mean kind of shows the other side here. So, Okay, if anyone did cause distress, he caused it not to me, but in some degree to all of you. The punishment already imposed by the majority was quite enough for such a person. And now, by contrast, you should forgive and encourage him all the more, or he may be overwhelmed by the extent of his distress. So, in other words, you're kind of wearing him down. You know, so just kind of forgive him and, you know, and encourage him, because you don't want him to fall away. And so, once again, thinking about the... Um, you know, what's best for the person. So at one point it seemed, remember when he was like, well, okay, they're doing all this stuff, so we need to kind of, you know, punish in a sense. And so in this, this sense, it's like, okay, so now we need to bring him back and edify and encourage. So um, there's also this idea of persevering in suffering, which, of course, St. Paul knows quite a bit about. And he even expresses that we are subjected to every kind of hardship, but never distressed. We see no way out, but we never despair. We are pursued, but never cut off. Knocked down, but still have some life in us. Always we carry with us in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus, too, may be visible in our body. So anyway, he's talking about his suffering and how that also brings about God's kingdom. And... You know, that perseverance in suffering is a, is a grace, um, but it's also something that we should always be working toward. In chapter 5, he talks about reconciling the community in general. Because once again, this seems like a common thread through First and Second Corinthians, that the divisions and, and uh, the splitting up of the community is really going against the gospel. So he's trying to get people back together. And then uh, chapters 8 and 9, he's talking about the second collection that goes to Jerusalem. Um, On one hand, it seems that the Corinthians were giving of their excess, but the Macedonians up to the north were so generous that he says that they were giving from their very need. Um, Once again, that goes back to Jesus' example of the poor widow dropping a couple of mites into the um, temple um, collection. But he's, he's saying basically, okay, Corinth, you need to pony up, you know, kind of get up there. 
But part of the reason, too, is that this is one way that St. Paul is unifying the two churches, because the church in Jerusalem would be primarily Jewish, and the church in Greece would be primarily Greek-speaking. So the charity to the Greek-speaking church, to the Jerusalem church in need, would be something that would be very, uh, um, I don't know, bringing together, unifying between the two different cultures so that the, the Jews would appreciate the Greeks and it would help bring them together. So he kind of uses that for that as well. Okay, so I'm going to go to chapter 11. Um, chapter 11, verses 5 through 6. Now I consider that I am not in the least inferior to the super-apostles, Even if there is something lacking in my public speaking, this is not the case with my knowledge, as we have openly shown you at all times and before everyone. All right, you see, so it's still going on. St. Paul is probably just thinking like, oh, how do I get this across? You know, it's been been like um, a couple years, and, you know, and he's still doing this. And he's, he's being very sarcastic, actually, when he's talking about these super apostles, because... That would be, those would be other people in the community who are trying to say that Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. So he's saying, well, if you believe them over me, what, you know, what else can I say? What else can I do? And then he, he once again, here, here he kind of gives some of his credentials. And uh, he does it in a way that's kind of interesting. Whatever bold claims anyone makes, now I'm talking as a fool. So now he realizes that, okay, I've got to talk about myself now. And he doesn't want to do it because it sounds like he's bragging. You know, and that's kind of the opposite of what he's telling everyone else to do. But he's like, well, if I don't do it, they're not going to get the point that I actually know what I'm talking about, and they need to be humble. It's kind of a funny thing, isn't it? So, well, anyway, here he goes. He goes, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak in utter folly. So once again, he's like, oh, I can't believe I'm saying this. I am too. And more than they are, because I've done more work. I've been in prison more. I've been flogged more severely, many times exposed to death. Five times I've been given 39 lashes by the Jews. You can't do 40, so 39 is the most you can get. Three times, well, that's true, actually. <laughs> it was, the Jewish law didn't allow 40. So. so three times I have been beaten with sticks. Once I was stoned. Three times I've been shipwrecked. And once I've been in the open sea for a night and a day, continually traveling. I've been in danger from rivers. and Anyway, he goes on and on and on. But the whole point here is he's saying, like, look, you know, it's like, I've got the credentials, but I'm not lording it over you all. And so learn from what I'm trying to say here. And then he's got the uh, um, chapter 12, the mystical experience, when he talks about being caught up into heaven. So if you want to read something that talks a little bit about Paul's mysticism. Chapter 12 would be good for that. And then he also talks about this thorn. We don't know what the thorn is. People have theorized, well, it must be his eyesight, you know, it must be, you know, who knows. We don't know for sure. But uh, whatever it is, it's something that was very real. And St. Paul talks about it as something that he wanted the Lord to cure him of or to heal him from or take away from him. And the Lord basically said, my grace is enough. So he uses that, I think, to help um, encourage his community that whatever they might be going through, 
that if they feel that, you know, well, I, I just can't be a good Christian because I've got this one issue or this one thing, that they can take heart in knowing that, well, St. Paul had the same thing, and, you know, the Lord said his grace would be enough for him, and it was. So that means that we can rely on the Lord's grace, even through our weakness, because it's in our weakness that we're made strong. So anyway, so here's St. Paul basically living out what he's preaching. Okay, once again, he summarizes his intent, and this is where we'll end it. Chapter 13, verse 10. That is why I'm writing this while still far away, so that when I am with you, I shall not have to be harsh with the authority that the Lord has given me, an authority that is for building up and not breaking down. Once again, kind of shows his heart. You know, why he does what he does is, you know, even if he's getting harsh, he has to do that because he's doing it for the, the well-being of his people, you know, being a good spiritual father. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.